Welcome to the Muscle Nerd Podcast, presented by Lifters League, bringing real science to the strength community. Introducing your host, Gus Cook, head powerlifting coach of Lifters League, strength athlete, physicist, educator, and entrepreneur. Okay, so welcome to the Muscle Nerd Podcast. This is Gus Cook, head powerlifting coach of Lifters League, and today our co-hosts, uh, Leonie um, Smith. Uh, strength coach and assistant manager here at Lifters League. And Braden, assistant strength coach. What's going on, guys? Um, so today we're going to go into the third episode of the athlete management. So the athlete management was originally decided to do because people were interested in, in programming. And I think trying to explain programming um, is not as simple as just trying to explain what exercise sets and reps to do, but it's understanding the foundations of what builds a program and with episode three now that we got two fundamental aspects of on um, on programming but not just program but athlete management um, we've covered um, the scientific method which is now we have the method then we've gone over goal setting so now we have the goal so we have, a, we have something to work towards now we'll look at the principles of building strength so before you even go into programming you see what are the things that actually actually builds strength and this is what determines my, um, you know, sets reps and and training protocols um, and then all and then you know all the other other important things um, cool so first thing you want to talk about is that so the first principle pr- first principle of building strength is that first off strength is a skill um, and, and in this type of skill, it's a, it's a, we'll say, um, it's a, basically a neurological, it's a neurological aspect of, of movement. And so, um, we have to constantly, like any other sport, uh, like, um, baseball or rugby or, uh, or even playing musical instruments, the guitar or violin, uh, you have to constantly practice, mm-hmm. and the practice um, involves some of the things that in, in, um, mostly, uh, mostly involves is technique. Now, with technique, I, I generally like to break in technique into into a few parts. Um, it can go into a lot more depth, but basically, technique involves biomechanics, power, and tension. You could probably go as far as also um, um, psychology, but that probably can come under power, power production as well. Um, so basically, I guess, so with technique, and the main technique people think about is just is just mechanics. And so it's always a little bit more than just mechanics when it comes to techniques, but it is essentially one of the most important, important things. So basically with technique, we want to learn how to load the joints so that we create a symmetrical force upon um, all joints, all joints, and use the most efficient path possible that is going to prevent injury and produce the most amount of power. Some of the things that we should probably understand about biomechanics, uh, biomechanics is compressive forces, shearing forces, line of action, center of mass, and moment arm. These five things. Uh, if you can understand these five things, it makes it a lot easier to explain what's wrong with the technique or what's good with the technique or why the technique is the way it is. Um, so compressive forces. So a compressive force is um, when forces are aligned um, into each other with a balanced inward pushing force, compressing forces. So you can imagine in a bench press, if I don't have... Um, symmetrical forces around surrounding my shoulder joint then if I have an unaligned force which is what we call a shearing force that's where I might start getting some sort of um, anterior anterior tilt with the um, with the delts which really comes sort of anterior shoulder pain um, a lot of that can come from a lot of that basically essentially that is a shearing force now one one way that we try and help increase compressive forces or aligned forces in the um, and the shoulder joint is that will get people to use their lats more. Right? So that takes it away from the interior and makes it more symmetrical. So a shearing force is an unaligned force. Now, 
The common ones, like I said, we said shoulders, there's also lower back. If we don't have, first off, the right technique, a lot of the shearing forces does go through the lower back. If we're not hinging with the hips and utilizing the glutes, utilizing the glutes, or we haven't create stability around the spine, then we can create shearing forces into the lower back. And it becomes an unaligned force. So this is where kind of where you can always say is that where force is escaping. And where force escapes is where is where problems happen or where the point of the problem is. Line of action. So a line of action is basically where the force is going to be directed or a force representing the direction. So in the bench press, uh, one I, the one I generally would say is the um, the line between the elbow and the and the wrist is the direction the bar will travel. If the line between the elbow and the wrist is pulling away from the is, is pointing away from the head, then you'll be pushing away from you. Um, we want the line of action to be going towards back to back to our starting point, which is um, stacked over the top of our shoulder joint. Um, in the squat, if you if you start to let's say the the line between the ankle, or the ankle or the middle of the foot and the bar is a straight up and up and down line. Is the direction the bar will travel. If the bar becomes forward of that, that forward of the forward of the foot too much, as like someone may my hips may rise first, shoulders will fall forward. Then the force, the uh, the line of action is going to be launching you forward. So the body generally has to compensate, which then causes some can cause some shearing forces in the spine. Or they have to use a lot of musk. You have to create generally a lot of more, more muscular contraction and other points, which then again you have to produce more force than necessary, and you're losing your dissipating force falling forward. So this is also where we want to know what your center of mass is. Center of mass also helps determine your line of action. Your center of mass, let's say example for yeah, again we'll go with the squat. If we want the center of mass to be in the middle of the foot. If the bar does shift forward or shift back, then the center mass will move. If that center mass moves, then your body has to compensate. If it starts to move, if it starts to move, um, center mass starts to move forward. Generally, people will start to shoot their hip, try to shoot their shoot their hips forward, pull their torso up. Um, if the if it falls, if it falls, if it tries to fall back, what do people do? They end up having to fold forward. Um, but again, if you understand the principles of where the center of mass is, then you can try and help maintain, um, um, try and find a position, um, maintain the position, what, why joints are moving out of position or where the, the where that individual, individual person's mechanics should be um, in terms of like how they should hip hinge or how far should their knee should travel forward or how far their torso should lean forward. Um, as long as you can maintain center of mass, then then you're still following these foundational principles. Moment arm. Now, moment arm is a good one to help find out what is the most efficient path. So a good one with the with the bench press is if the line of action is pushing away. Like I said, if the elbow and the elbow and the wrist joint pushes away from your head, you're increasing the moment arm. So there's a distance between so it's the imaginary line drawing at a right angle of the line of force. So the line of force will go again with the line of action, um, measuring the distance between the line of action and the force and the axis of joint rotation. So that's where the shoulder joint is going towards the line. So the line of action is pushing away the line between the the line between the joint and that line of action. If that distance increases, makes it makes it harder. If we make the distance shorter, it will make it generally easier without trying to also um, diminish some of the other principles we're trying to maintain. Like, for example, you can't keep the moment arm short by flaring your elbows out. You could keep a moment arm short if you flare your elbows out and touch it, touch the top of your chest. But then again, you're neglecting other principles of strength. Another good moment arm example was probably the distance between distance between the hip hip and the uh, and the deadlift uh, bar um, deadlift bar. So the closer the bar is to your hips. Um, as it travels, the easier that deadlift would be. One thing in terms of, so that's why sumo, sumo can be easy for some people because it reduces the moment arm of the lift. The hip becomes closer to the bar. In the conventional, we will generally increase for, uh, increase generally increase um, focus on more of a, um, uh, what would say. Actually, one of the ways I decrease the moment arm is actually getting people to protract more in the shoulders. 
So if they round the shoulders over a little more, it actually reduces the moment up very, very, very slightly. Um, having a completely, completely flattened, completely neutral spine makes would end up making the moment up a little bit longer. But based off some other principles, which we can talk about later in the deadlift, is that um, flexion of the spine or flattening of the spine is actually better at handling, compre handling compressive forces than a completely neutral spine. So again, we're not violating other other principles. And torque. So torque is a rotational force. You can imagine this type of force as, as like a, um, a spanner on a nut, on a nut bolt. So the further, the further my, the further I pull away. So if I, but actually example is, we had a flat, had a flat tire, and I, the nuts were on so tight that no matter how much weight I put on it, I put a lot of weight on it, I was kicking and everything, and you can't, I could not get the bolts off. So I used science to, um, to. Um, change my tires. I found a long pole that sticks to the end of the um, spanner and then it took barely any effort. It took barely just a tiny touch. It was already starting to undo itself because I had increased the lever, the lever arm. The lever arm generates more torque or rotational force at the bolt. So what we want to do is that the longer the longer our femur is in the squat, the more the more torque we have to create have to create in uh, in the hips to maintain this torque. So we, we, we want torque. The more torque, the more torque we can the more torque we can produce, the more stable we can become, the more stable we will become. Um, the longer your femurs are, the more torque you have to create. So that's why generally people with long who are taller or long legs, generally their knees cave more than someone who is shorter. Um, so short femurs like myself, I do really well with squat, because I don't have to generate as much torque as someone else with long like you, Braden. Yeah, I don't generate as much torque as I don't have to generate as much torque as you. So you have to be exceptionally stronger, have much stronger glutes than I do. Yeah. Um. Cool. So that's mechanics. Um. Another principle of strength is, or or of technique is, is the ability to be able to produce, um, produce power. So power equals both. Uh, we can use power as. F equals MA. So anyone knows Newton, Newtonian physics, um, the second law, the second law of motion, where, uh, where force equals mass times acceleration. Um, the more, the more acceleration you can produce, the more acceleration you can produce, the more force, we, the more force or more power we can produce, or the more mass we use, um, the more mass we use, then the more force we produce. But I've got a little template here. Let me bring it up. So, in terms of tension, or just even, we would use the, the proper terminology as intramuscular tension. So, intramuscular tension is increased if the resistance or the mass is greater than the acceleration, and or is greater, and the acceleration is preserved. Um, intramuscular tension in, is increased if the acceleration is greater and the resistance is preserved. Intramuscular tension is increased if both acceleration and load are increased. Um, so when we try to produce acceleration, acceleration is still comes under the fact that strength is a skill. To produce acceleration, what's come that we use some of the cues that we use, some of the cues I use is the tension, tension plank at the top. So a tension plank is a is a exercise we use to help generate um, tension and a static hold or an isometric or generating tension in an isometric hold such as a plank. So we try to get people to generate so much force, as much force as they possibly can to come to that tension plank at the top when it comes to like something like a deadlift. Helps generate more speed or um, a neural connection to the earth where we say, you know, drive, push the earth away. Push the earth away as hard as you can. Um, actually examples of some of my really slow lifters actually, I haven't done it with too many people um, there are a few people who were very successful with doing box jumps. Um, people who just had no concept of generating speed to get power. So you get someone, example, like a lot of females, and a lot of females generally only produce just enough force. The guys do it too, but it's most common with, with girls. Um, they generate just enough. Let's say, for example, we'll just use, to, to, for ease of understanding, we'll just use kilos of force. So if we have 100 kilos of force, we have to, on, on the, over 100 kilos on the bar, 
the lifter would only produce 101 kilos of force. So it would only move just fast enough. But if that per individual's max is 150, they should produce as much force as possible that they would hit their 1RM of 150 kilos. So then the acceleration, based off, if you were to put it onto a graph, the acceleration of that, so that's only 70, no, 66%. That bar should be fucking flying. Yeah. That bar should be very fast. The dissipation of acceleration wouldn't reduce to about 85%. So we should be able to maintain this, this um, um, is accelerate constant. We be, should be able to consistently increase mass up to about 85%, or constantly keep acceleration high up to about 85%, where then we get kind of a diminishing, diminishing turn, or what we call actually an inverse relationship between uh, acceleration and mass. So in turn, another again, here's another principle in strength is that we want to be hitting the most the, the most acceleration possible with the most weight possible and that's kind of the sweet spot for strength training it has very it is has very it, it's the maximum weight we can lift with the lot with the lowest impact of so the diminishing diminishing return impact on the central nervous system basically with this we're able to produce a huge amounts of load um which will take me to my next point soon so we'll go next lot next quick next next principle will be time under tension so, um, that's which is my situation. And then you got the second part of the skill, which is then how do we now handle handle more load with reduced acceleration? So basically, we're not reducing acceleration. The mass itself is is slowing us down, but we're reducing as much force as possible. Now, this is the next. This is the next part. Of, this is the next part of the skill is learning how to maintain technique under heavy load. So let's go talk about load. Um, so, time under tension. Now, time under tension was made famous by um, Charles Poliquin, and but I believe it was misinterpreted that he used he used a kind of like a a two uh, used a timing method where you lower under under let's say you lower the weight under a bench press for two seconds, hold for one second, concent go through the concentric for two seconds. So that would be like a two, one, two, zero. I don't use time under tension because it it, it doesn't come on, it doesn't fit well with the principles of um, building strength. It does really well, however, fit really well with rehabilitation or skill learning. Um, um, I would slow people down to, to get people to try and think about their technique more and to help build ten, help help build enough volume under slow um, under perfect technique. So we'll go we'll move slowly at first, and you accumulate tension over time under this perfect technique. But over time, you'll have to try to increase the acceleration of that lift. But the skill next skill there is can that person maintain the technique over with with that load? Okay. Next one. Nervous system is key. So you got what's called absolute absolute strength minus limit strength equals um, strength deficit. Now, the more the greater the strength deficit, um, the stronger that person can get. The smaller the deficit, the greater. Now, to understand how this works is that the nervous system has a maximum potential already. And this is where, for example, where mothers will pick cars up with children. The body will override every safety mechanism to protect oneself to, um, to um, basically either to live or save another person's life, um, like a mother helping them, helping them a child. Um, now, the, the difference, now why couldn't she hit a, you know, that lift that 200 car before she had that flight or fight response? And this is known as a strength deficit, so the maximum potential of the muscle, and, and then actually being able to produce, actually being able to produce um, that strength. So knowing the absolute strength and limit is the difference, is the difference. And understanding this allows us to know that we have to try and train over out-train these mechanisms that are preventing preventing us from having our absolute strength there. Um, Muscle receptors. So we have different receptors in the body 
not just muscle receptors, but there's also yeah, we got ten, we got receptors, uh, tendons that act as uh, receptors to the muscle to prevent um, uh, prevent overload of the muscle. So it's it's not in our it's, it's not in our instinct to to do a heavy deadlift. Our body will naturally want to want to not lift that weight or shut down, basically, to prevent you from injuring yourself. And so what we have to do as coaches and lifters is help override these these kind of safety mechanisms that the body has to protect itself. One way, actually using also when it comes to like, if we go back a little bit to the um, uh, nervous system, is that uh, one, re one way we have overcome how we maximize the... Um, nervous system where, where why, the reason why that mother was able to lift the child off is is generally a flight or fright response now one thing we help overcome these receptors and help m get more out of our um, uh, strength deficit is that we tap into this this adrenaline response or we uh, tap into this fight or fright response and the ability to be able to do this now people do this in many different ways people can do this quite calmly like you said you're Leonie you're quite calm at lifting mm -hmm. but you're still tapping into the flight or fight mm -hmm. response just in a different manner some people are different some people have to show more aggression some people are quite calm and collected when doing it but why, why people do that there's many different ways that people why people think music music can act as a psychological trigger so what we call it is I call actually we call it a psychological anchor so basically, you've now created this created this fight or flight response with with music you listen to, or with with deadlifting and deadlifting itself. Um, or when you listen to that song, your body starts to prepare itself for this danger that's about that's to come. Cute. Yeah, um, it's something. Everyone has anyone heard of the Pavlov's Pavlov's dog? No. It's, a, it's a science experiment that will happen on a that they did on a on a dog where if they Rang the bell and feed the dog. The dog would 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 salivate. Um, if now if you kept doing that and then still ring the bell but didn't provide the food, the dog would still salivate. And this is the same as um, as it's, it's kind of you creating this again. You creating a psychological anchor. Now anchors can be sound. Anchors can be kinesthetic, touching. They can be visual. And um, there are many things. So you know um, when I watch a deadlift video. Of someone like I start to get quite excited to lift. I really want to go do a deadlift session again. I have a visual cue or a visual anchor that's making me want to do. And this is where you start to overcome, overcome these these limits that you, that your body naturally has to protect itself. And now the reason why these start to shut down is because it's a evolutionary trait of of that alliance wants to fucking kill you. And so your body your body has to protect itself so what it does a few things happen basically you perceive time to slow down you're able to react reaction times massively increase your receptors shut down so that you're able to use the maximum potential of your strength so you're able to run faster hit faster um where normally those things would injure a person like if i was to hit maximum potential with a muscle if someone's untrained you're most likely going to tear a muscle um but your body has to overcome that to be able to save its life. There's no point living if you can't live. And if we didn't have those mechanisms, then all our ancestors would have been eaten by lions. Um, next one, uh, hypertrophy. So hypertrophy is a very big, uh, obviously a very big part of building strength. The more muscle we can build, the more strength potential we have. Um, so we actually increase we actually end up increasing the absolute absolute strength that we would possibly have. You start to create a greater network, uh, fiber network, or a neurological network through through the muscle, or have the potential to build more of it. Um, so hypertrophy. Uh, actually, one thing is different protocols. So what works best? So when it comes to hypertrophy, reps work. Reps. Um, higher reps, lower sets work better when strength training specifically for strength or training specifically for strength sets over reps do better so doing more sets, lower reps mainly because they'll be able to hit those higher percentages 
with strength training, we're able to hit high percentages and maintain a skill without breaking down technique, with, um, but with hypertrophy, we do require higher repetition on muscle um, to stimulate the um, type two, type two um, um, fast twitch muscle fibers. And so principles of hypertrophy is more, more to do with, um, well not, not like time and detention works both with strength and hypertrophy. So time and detention is, um, actually we've got to elaborate this on before. So time and detention was interpreted as how much time you spend under a single contraction. But time and detention is the amount of time you can spend in tension. So if I was to do, someone was to produce, to do 100 kilos for th three slow reps compared to someone doing 15 reps of 100 kilos, that person is producing more acceleration, which the tension is, the tension becomes greater and you've done it for more repetitions. The time is the amount of reps he's done over the 10, 15 reps. That's the time of period he's produced more tension. If he's going slower for three reps, but had also taken, you know, taken the same amount of time, that person has spent the same amount of time under that load, but actually hasn't produced the amount of tension required. And so, um, um, because you're missing one factor, acceleration. You need acceleration to produce maximum tension. Acceleration times mass equals power, tension, um, force, production. Well, intramuscular tension, you have to be specific, intramuscular tension. Um, um, now, actually, I'm a little, I am a little bit all over the place, but when it comes, if I come bring it, bring it back to tension, the, uh, another skill set when it comes to strength is uh, being, the ability to be able to generate tension. So it's not just intramuscular tension, which is done during lifting, but being able to generate tension. So how do you have this fiber continuity between taking the, taking, taking the slack out of the, from the deadlift bar mm, and how to transfer all that tension through the body. So then how to you know, contract, how to contract your lats, stabilize your spine, brace your abdominals, squeeze, generate torque in the, generate torque in the hips. All these things, all these aspects generate tension and more potential for power. Ghost. Ghost in the gym. Um, how to generate more tension for power. Um, now, they're all key, generating tension, intramuscular tension, and time under tension. So generating tension, um, so um, potential force production, intramuscular tension, tension whilst lifting with acceleration and mass, and time under tension, the amount of time you spend under maximal tension possible, which is your sets over reps, or I would say time equals, time equals volume, and under tension is the force production. Um, so yes, hypertrophy plays a big role in building Go back to hypertrophy. So hypertrophy builds a uh, plays a big role in terms of the amount of potential strength we can build. Example being um, bodybuilders. Bodybuilders are very good at building size, but not much strength. So they build um, they have to build lots of size, but they also then have the capability of the potential to build lots of strength. So this is why, for example, in, in powerlifting, the doors really annoying. That power. Um, if the powerlift, if a powerlifter was able to, uh, if a bodybuilder, when we've seen bodybuilders come over to powerlifting, they end up doing, accelerating really well. So they end up putting, what, what close to, I've seen people put 100 kilos a year on their total going from, you know, even myself, I went from 600, 700, 800. So it's, hang on, so that's 600, 700, over two years, uh, two, three, two and a half years, um, which was a lot faster than most people at the time. Because when I joined, there weren't many bodybuilders doing powerlifting. But when I did decided to do powerlifting, I was just people who just helps. I end up catching up really, really quickly, and I've seen this time and time again. So, muscle size, and this is and then this is well recorded amongst a lot of people. So, where building size builds the potential for building strength, and also vice versa. So, a lot of powerlifters who do bodybuilding tend to do really, really, really well um, um, on the bodybuilding stage because uh, they have the potential to build lots of muscle size. So they both have a direct correlation or to a degree or an indirect correlation to help um, to, um, to build, to, uh, help build strength. And probably the last factor, um, well, there's different start actually, whether we should go over this one or not. Um, 
Now I'll save that for an, I'll save that for another one. So let's go with the uh, you know, psychological limitations. So um, so psychology where how, how I put this so back to your fight, fight response. Yeah. <clears throat> Especially where it all starts. So anxiety, you're talking about anxiety. Yeah, the ability to raise anxiety, but in a positive consequence. So what are some of your, your examples you've had with anxiety, people with anxiety? Um, what, help overcome, you help, help either utilising or is it overcoming anxiety to be able to lift or? Yeah, yeah. So some people... Yes, utilise. Some people, I think the ones that can then have a positive relationship with the anxiety in their body in the sense of lifting, I guess they don't have a thought. They don't, I don't know, not that they don't have to think about it so much, it probably comes a little bit more I think some people natural. I think some people, find it, some people find it inhibiting, some people find it fueling. So, yeah. you know, when I'm getting all hyped up, that's a form of anxiety, mm. but I'm utilising it to lift mm. where, um, I'm, um, where I'm helping train some people now who have had anxiety, um, and you and it cripples them, but then we're slowly teaching them to start to channel that in the right way. And I use visualization with them. So basically, rather than letting negative thoughts come in, whether the feelings come or not, be prepared for those feelings. But then also, then um, um, you've already started to visualize what is meant to happen. And if you start to think about, okay, this is, the anxiety is going to happen but I'm gonna nail this 100 kilo deadlift. And in your head, you're already lifting it and you should already be feeling what it feels like to lift it. Um, and to show that they should, to explain the, the, the power of visualization, um, there was a study done, um, there was a study done where they compared, so there were, these people were already trained. Um, so they compared people, compared a, Three groups, one group who practice shooting hoops, another group who visualized shooting hoops, and the third group who just did nothing. Um, so that was the control group. And both the, both the people who practiced and visualized, obviously did be both did better to control, but they both increased their skill equally. Even though the other person didn't do anything, he, they just visualized. So once basically for this to work once you've already created the pattern or the technique you're trying to develop in the nervous system you've trained the nervous system to do so you visualizing and also you sleeping on it now the word sleeping on it you know, derives from something like when you actually so people have always said that when people sleep on people people feel better or they know their skill they feel their skills better but what actually happens when you sleep is that the nervous system the pattern or the movement pattern you have trained fires 20 times faster when you sleep. So if you were to listen, if you were to listen to what happens, it'll go, when you train, it goes dunk, dunk, dunk. But when you go to sleep, it's 20 times faster in the exact same pattern. So you're increasing that skill while you sleep, as well as also visualizing also helps increase that skill. Now, anyway, that was just a random fact, but coming back to using psychology you have anxiety is a natural response right and it's what helped protect us um, uh, protect our ancestors from you know you know uh, from potential threats what's needed to prepare the body to, to, to do a, um, a task yeah and um, the thing is it can like like you were saying before, some people, the heightened anxiety, they can, um, their body or their, their, they have the mechanisms to be able to tolerate that heightened level of anxiety. Then there's other people that don't have the ability to handle that heightened level of anxiety, but they need to have that to perform the task. Mm -hmm. um, so one, like one thing that I would have with people that are like that, and you see you can hear in the way they talk, you can see in their body language, you can see it sometimes when they approach the bar. They're so erratic that, that, that they can't even they can't even stand still to stabilise the bar, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, so maybe things, I sort of look at things like filters, so they need to be have the ability to be able to filter, I guess, what's happening around them to focus on what they need to do at that particular time to perform the task. Mm. Um, and then also 
I guess the filters also aid as a, a stimulant blocker, if that makes sense. So some people, if they have a heightened level of anxiety, they can't they can't process in in that level of anxiety. They need to be able to block out certain stimulant stimulants around them so they can focus on what they're doing. So this so is like, that's what you're saying before music headphones. Some people need to have headphones on so mm. they're not they can't hear what's going on around them or visual. Like sometimes people will remove themselves and take themselves off into their own little bit of space. Um, getting people to sit down instead of standing and moving around and walking and keeping their body going, getting them to actually sit, settle for a sec and then amp themselves up in that moment before so they're not walking around for half an hour before a lift or something like that, if you know what I mean, can mm -hmm. help. Um, and it's knowing how to time that right as well because, you know, um, staying calm long enough and knowing when you need to start as well, mm -hmm. starting too soon, like getting amped up too soon, um, again, like you said, have this negative feedback loop. Yeah. Um, and Bo does it. Bo does it really. She's super calm for so long, and and it's like, um, and you can see she's only hot. Actually, the moment she actually goes on stage, she's still actually really calm. You see her start to breathe more, but she's very in, in, in internal. She doesn't have any like big visual things that a lot of other people do. Um, and by the by the time she's on stage, you can see this um, intense intense level of focus because she times it right. But before that. She's basically in a protective mode, basically be staying as calm and as relaxed as possible. She sits in the corner, listens to her music, talks to no one. Um, I find breathing another one. So I think about diaphragmatic breathing can be a way of um, calming for some, but then at the same time, you can also be used in the right moment to prep yourself for lifting. I use it to, yeah, you know, I use diaphragmatic breathing to help increase that. Yeah, I do the same. Um, yeah, but for other people, it can be a way of bringing things down. Um, yeah, these are, these are, so basically how we explain it, these are mechanisms that overcome these, um, these receptors that prevent us from, psychological, physiolo physiological receptors that prevent us from wanting to live or protect ourselves. And, and psychology is a big part of how of overcoming these receptors, um, preventative receptors or protective receptors, and also just constant practice and skill over time. You know, slowly beating away more and more and then, Pushing the psychological barrier more and more with, with every every set until the point that they. The know. other one is that along with visualization that you talk before, which is huge, is um with all that self imagery. So seeing yourself go through the setup, the lift, and a successful lift. So then along with the successful lift is also the self the positive self talk that happens in your head at that time as well. So what you're thinking about prior to lifting, um, maybe like maybe even use an example that you have like. The day before, like the day before, you you know what you're already trying to prepare yourself for. I suppose it's even big this and yeah, just like a you month before you. Yeah, know. well, yeah, you visualize and you start preparing your body earlier enough on it. It's not like you just rock up on the day and go, oh, hang on, now I'm about to go pull a 200 kilo deadlift. You're already starting the process prior to the task occurring as well. It's even just thinking that's like life. About yeah, you can do that. Yeah, skills. Yeah, that's it. Like people doing big conference meetings and having to get up and talk in front of people and prepare themselves. It's they would they would know about this prior on. They would, you know, write down what they need to talk. They would practice. They would do all sorts of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So they would use similar sort of type of skills. But that's all heightened anxiety and that fight or flight response. Um, another one I reckon which ties into all this that come to my mind when we're talking is, um. I think it comes down to like a bit of a stereotype and I've had a few clients that fall in this category where the fight or flight response has been so uncomfortable for them that it's actually stopped progress. It's actually stopped them from wanting to lift heavy. And, and I find, and this is only stereotypical, it's not the norm, it's not everyone, but it's the people that generally like hypertrophy. They don't like to do strength training. I find it's the people that, you know, um, give you that famous line of, oh, I don't need to lift heavy. I don't need to lift heavy for my gold. Um, and probably like, I find those types, that, that stereotype of group of people, I nine times out of 10 find it comes back to exactly that, their inability to handle that fight or flight response in a positive mannerism. I don't know if that's, that's just my, you know, everyone, that's my, no, everyone has, what I've come to everyone's, everyone, everyone is Everyone is different, so yeah. yeah. You have people who, I think the science mind is more like, um, how receptive are you to different neurotransmitters? Yeah. Uh, so you've got people who are responsive to dopamine or serotonin, um, people who are responsive to serotonin are more have the anxiety, uh, and, uh, more having, uh, have the anxiety where people with dopamine are rewarded by, by 
the um, competition. Mm. Um, so most of your competitive athletes are uh, highly um, uh, do- uh, receptive to dopamine. Now, dopamine, and just another rant, dopamine is, um, uh, dopamine is, you know, people always saw dopamine as a reward drug. Um, so when you do, when you get something, when you get something that you, you wanted or desired, you had a release of dopamine. But that's not the actual fact. So what happens is that um, if you were to, when we added operant conditioning with it, so there was a study done where they added operant conditioning with it, where they, um, where they rang the bell, gave the food, they ate the food, dopamine increased. Now they did this over and over again, and then this time they rang the bell and didn't provide the food, but dopamine still increased. And not only did it, and now they thought, well, would it start to dissipate or was that just a single response? No, what actually started to happen is that the dopamine continued to increase higher and higher and higher, even though they didn't produce produce the food. So if you gave the food sometimes, then dopamine actually continued to increase more and more and more. And so they determined that dopamine is an anticipation of a reward. So when it comes to a lifter, lifter itself, like, the reward is competing. Okay, so... They are driven by, they are driven by dopamine, and they have this high, this drive to, um, well, this constant dopamine release as they're training closer and closer to a comp. That's when motivation is really, really, really high. Those are the really competitive people. This is also explains why there's a big depression after a big competition for some people, um, because most people who are highly competitive are mostly dopamine responsive. You never get anxious people, not too many anxious people on the big stage. Yeah. And that was sort of start classifying personality types. Yeah, so that's, that's for personality that's profiling. Some of the, some of the, um, the factors like you get from some of these people with the um, with that personality style. You see massively. But you still need to be able to get them a result. Like you still need to be able to get them what they want. So but we just have to come about it a different way. Yeah, and these are just bar- these are just barriers that we have to as a coach have to know and understand how to overcome and as a lifter know understand these to uh, um, overcome with yourself and know these factors of limitation and know the, know basically overall these principles to that build strength. And these principles are sound science. Everything is backed up by science. This is not my opinion, this is based off lots and lots of research. And use these principles to help. Um, second. Use these, use these principles to guide what are the right, um, guide the right decisions, or what are right, good training methodologies. Um, do you have any other points? Uh, so to summarize, remember strength is a skill. Um, strength is better built in lower repetitions, um, and because you require time under tension, you're better off doing lots of sets. Technique is key. Technique is under comes. Technique um, includes things like understanding mechanics or your biomechanics. What best works for your um, anatomical breakup or your levers. The ability and technique is the ability to be able to produce power and the ability to be able to produce tension. How to both generate tension, uh, maintain or increase intramuscular tension and um, the skill to hold tension over time. So the ability to be able to push through to the 10, 15 repetitions as as many people don't like. Nervous system is key. There is a deficit to strength and everyone has the potential to get strong. Just another random example is that when a person gets electrocuted, you'll see it before, you've seen it on TV and movies and stuff where people go flying across the room to the other end of the room. The electricity isn't doing that. It's the person's body itself. The contraction of the muscles is so powerful that it flies a person across the wall. They were forced contracted. They have the ability to do that in the first place. We have to train it though. Um, so that comes along the lines of body wanting to survive and conserving energy. It won't, yeah. want to, it won't want to expel any more energy than what it necessarily has to. We are naturally we to force it to. We are naturally lazy, and the we are naturally lazy. We naturally want to preserve calories, and that is um, that is the nature of all of species. So 
the people, the, the, the creatures that were able to preserve, preserve the most amount of calories um, and also successfully have sex is the creatures that always um, survive. This is why we have some lazy habits like why we have bad posture because we actually like rest in all our ligaments. Energy expending to sit there and in a proper posture. Yeah, and okay, muscles right now. <laughs> well, it's energy costing. We have it's the we have the abundance of calories today, so okay. um, we are able to push human performance. Um, then there's overcoming muscle receptors, so both physiological and psychological receptors that prevent you that are safety mechanisms in the body that prevent you from lifting um, to protect itself. Um, I've got a question here, and I, it might be completely random, mm. but Going along the muscle receptor where it says, you were saying before, where it prevents muscle overload, mm. is there a thing in the body, like I know putting muscle on, it's a luxury, like your body doesn't, it's not inclined to want to do that. We have to create the environment to do that. Yeah. Is there such a thing as well with the body that it will want to try and lose muscle if, like, is it like energy costing for the body to have muscle on it? Yes, it is very energy costing. So if you have the demand, that, if you stop the demand, um, the muscle will go, will, will disappear. Yep. The nervous system generally stays intact. So is that where like cardio sometimes, like that's just going to sound a little bit off topic, but that's along the lines of where cardio will want to, in a way, depending what type of cardio, it can want to actually strip muscle off the body to prevent joints and the load going through because you're such a longevity type. Well, there's many, thing. many, many, many factors there. I mean, like first of all, it's a high calorie. You've got the high calorie expenditure. Yeah. And the body has no process for being able to store protein. Yeah. So your body will require amino acids to function and it will, because of the high calorie expenditure, your body will start to break down muscle tissue to do so, unless you're eating enough food. But the calorie demand of that is so high that you're probably going to override the ability to be able to utilize all the amino acids you need to use for proper function. Um, Sorry, I went a bit off, off topic there, but I was just like, when you're saying then about yeah, the muscle receptors preventing... But it's going to, pro it's going to, pro it's going to prioritize... It's going to prioritize you running. We're, we're better runners. We're better runners than we are building muscle. Yeah. And if you even think about the evolutionary perspective of that, if we're in an environment where we're constantly running, well, we don't need to keep muscle mass because it's kind of expensive. We need to be constantly running because we're fucking running from something. <laughs> do we yeah. wrestle grizzly bears or do we run away from the grizzly bears? <laughs> we leg it. <laughs> um, and so you have to create the right environment. Yes, you have to create the right environment for. Uh, muscle to be built it is calorie expensive which is why we have to constantly make sure we eat constantly you know are eating um so yes let's say so hypertrophy is a principle so don't neglect hypertrophy especially as a power lifter you know don't if you're if you can stick to a weight class for quite some time but don't stick to a weight class as long as you can this is why it goes against the principles of strength building people say oh i want to be three weight classes lighter it's like well it goes completely against what what the principles of strength and conditioning is if you're a if you're about 70, 72 kilos, you should be in the 75 kilos, not the 67s. Right, if you've got some fat to lose, then yeah, you probably can get there over time, but I wouldn't be sacrificing um, muscle mass to do that. And that's what people forget. People think about weight over muscle mass and sacrifice muscle. Right? In the end, you eventually have to move up a weight class. You can fit in a weight class for a very long time. And I would say, you know, classes are more, less weight classes and more of a high class. If you're tall, you're generally going to be in a higher weight class and you'll be able to sustain that weight class for a long time. I should be, technically should be capable of being able to stay in the 125s for the next couple of years, quite a few quite a few years, um, um, before having to move up to super, I'm super heavyweight now, but I'm pretty fat. Um, um, yeah, so those are the main principles. I'm sure there's other things there. I just haven't, um, remember that I took these notes very quickly, five minutes before we started. Mm -hmm. um, um, I think it'd be pretty cool to hear some feedback from people about what strategies they incorporate um, for that fight or flight response prior to like a heavy lift or prior to pretty much preparing themselves to do a heavy set or a 1RM or, a, or compete. Well, then, mm -hmm. no, let's go through. What do you do, Gus, before a big set? I know what you do, but how do you explain it? Like mentally, what do you think? I start, I, I start on the Monday yeah, okay. before. Um, my big day is always deadlift day and I'm already preparing Monday. I'm already visualizing what I want to do and how successful that's going to be. I'm already by, you know, Wednesday and Thursday, I'm already very excited because mm -hmm. you know, I've, I've conditioned myself to be excited for, um, that lift. Mm -hmm. I have, I lift like I compete. Um, it has a really good response for me that, um, I do better at singles and reps. 
Um, if I hit, if I have to do a five or two twenty, it'll be slow compared to doing two um, twenty or two forty for a single. Mm. It'll be faster. I'll be I'll be faster at pulling two sixty than I am at for a single than I am at two twenty for five. Yeah. Um, I do better with lower reps, um, um, and that's mainly because I'm fo focusing on that skill of competing as well. Do you get like angry or emotional before you lift, or do you say more? Like, it's, it's, it's 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 an extreme. It's it's like a. I would say it's in a variant of definitely a variant of anger. Hmm. But it's kind of a, a hyper focused hmm. um, or hyper vigilance, yeah. I would say, but in a different way, not a not an anxiety driven way, but more yeah. of a, like a heightened fight or flight response way. Hmm. A couple of triggers I use is um, music. Um, I, I watch some of the lift, I, even like before I'm training, I watch some lifters um, that do some big deadlifts, and that generally gets me pretty um, uh, head focused. Um, and then. Um, Love ammonia, yeah. Um, See, yeah. But then there's, there's more. There's, there's more than that. It's become it's become psychological for me mm -hmm. using ammonia. Um, 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 I mean, yeah, when it's really when it's really heavy, you can get a get a good get a good uh, get a good adrenaline response with a good good whack on the back. Yeah. Uh, but not everyone does well to that. Against for some people, that triggers anxiety. For me, that makes me pretty focused and pretty, and I get a lot. I get a lot out of my lifting mm -hmm. with that. I go from something being very hard. I've I've remember in comp, in comp. I remember in comp like, you know, being at back and failed a two twenty and then smashed two eighty mm -hmm. on, on a platform. Yeah, um, for sure. And it's different. I think everyone is completely differently. Like, you know, like you'll see you stuff like that will be deadlifts and stuff. But people are like, oh, does that hurt? I'm like, I don't remember. I don't really feel it. Like, because before that even happens. I get myself so emotionally g'd up that like I don't remember <laughs> like twenty seconds before the rep. I'm in a completely different world. Mm. Not thinking about anything except I try and get emotional, angry sort of thing, and then the rest is a blur man until after the rep's done. And like you saw the other day, um, I walked off afterwards. Like mm. I still hadn't calmed down to like what fifteen seconds later, and I was like, oh, <laughs> mm. calm back down. And then the only yeah, the opposite. I'm the opposite. I'm very aware that too much anxiety can actually work negatively for me. It can actually decrease my ability to perform. So um, I like to um, visualize. So I, I use visualization, um, preparing myself prior to the event. So I'm very similar with you guys. Like if I know I've got something coming up, it's in my thoughts. And when it comes up to my thoughts, I'm always trying to have a positive connection with it. So visualizing successful lifts, positive self-talk. If the negative and the doubts and stuff come in, I try to... Um, I try to, to reframe it so that in my head it doesn't, it won't talk me out of doing something. It'll actually do the opposite. But I have to be very aware of that. Um, I like to be in my own headspace. So if I'm getting ready for a lift, I don't like a thousand people in my face and in my space and talking to me. I'm, I'm I much prefer being left on my own, in my own little area, doing my own little thing, getting myself where I need to be in my head to to be in the best position to do what I need to do on the day. Um, I'm probably better with more reps and poorer with one RMs. Gus said the other day that's improved. I probably would agree with him. Um, I'm a bit, probably a bit of a grinder. I can grind through reps now. Um, so that's probably a little bit about that's a skill my, itself. Hey? That's yeah, I've had to learn that. Talked about before. Yeah, not to not to not to stop, to, just to keep going. It will slow down. But I know I can if I keep applying force through the floor and I keep that tension through the body, it will it will, Ru it will move. Ruby's improved there. Where yeah. she was at the eighty-five kilo, she'd start to fall forward, and her body immediately just stopped. Yeah. That was the first time she like, caught the bar. And then yeah. me and Sam were watching her and, and encouraging her. And it's just like, why'd you stop? Why'd you stop? We both saw it's like it's there. Yeah. We see the power. And then the other night when she tested, got it. Same thing happened. She fall forward, but she grinded through, yeah. and she built that skill to grind. It really is a skill. Another one I realize a lot with is bench press. That's her big one. I find um. As soon as they go to push and as, if it slows, they just stop. Mm. Otherwise, or I've seen people lift their feet and stuff. Like, it's just an automatic response mm. just to lift the feet. And it's like, well, you've just lost any chance of having any of that tension that you create at the start. It's out the window, which is coming back to that whole talk you talked about before about part of, part of building strength is the ability to be able to generate tension, intramuscular tension, and then sort of time under tension. But, um, yeah, but there's all little things like that that you see. But, yeah, I'm a little bit different to you guys. I can't get... If I got as amped up as you guys, it would, I reckon, it'd be quite the negative. Um, yeah, it depends on the lift though as well. Like I think I don't know if you're the same, but my bench is a lot more calm because oh, it's so a lot more technical. I think yeah, if you're not, if you're not thinking a little bit, 
I'll fuck it up and I'll miss I'll it. Fo- I'll still focus the same. I just wouldn't be as g yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Ammonia is good. I have to admit, I use ammonia like these guys. I use ammonia. Um, coffee, I have to admit, if I have more coffee, <laughs> it will actually increase my performance. But I one. get the... I have to choose my times because I get the the crashes from the I've always wanted caffeine. To, I've always wanted to do a study on performance and coffee flavours compared to coffee itself and see if there's a strong placebo effect in, oh. in performance and how yeah. much how much is placebo how much is caffeine interesting <laughs> there's but there, there is a lot of um there is uh, um i'll have to look it up there are definitely a lot of placebo caffeine studies out there mm-hmm. comparing performance and placebo caffeine oh, yeah. does caffeine itself caffeine mentally does have mentally gets me more focused it actually helps me mentally get more focused if mm-hmm. that makes sense sims in general if you go into a, like a heavy lift unstimmed it comes back to that, like, for a heavy lift, you want everything to be completely perfect for every aspect, every angle. So if you miss that one of, oh, I have no stims today, then mentally you've already kind of hindered yourself, which is where that placebo comes from. This is another one too, where another mental preparation is actually rituals. Rituals. Yeah, mm-hmm. Rituals matter. Yeah. How you set up the equipment you use. But not even, not even, even before that, your ritual and coming into training right, as yeah. well. Yeah. So, like, yeah. some people, I actually know some people... It's actually is one reason why it can be hard, sometimes hard for me, and a lot of other gym owners that I know, a lot of other trainers find it hard to train in their own gym, but they find it, as soon as you've, as soon as you've gone somewhere else, um, as soon as you've gone somewhere else, it's completely, it's completely fine because you prepared yourself to go to another, to another environment. Well, if you use an example, people that don't work in gyms, they work in other, like offices or outside or wherever, yet they, when they finish their shift, they shut off, well, they shut off from work, but they literally leave that bag there, they pick up their gym bag and they go to the gym, walking, actually physically going somewhere like that is actually already preparing your body for the task at hand. So it's same with some people that train at home. Um, I find I had equipment at home, but my ability to train at home was quite poor. Um, I've got a few clients that train at home, and I guess like keeping that in mind is something that I remind them of as well. Sometimes it's inconvenient to be able to have the equipment there and train, but then it's that ritual you're talking about then of going somewhere and actually preparing yourself to perform that task. Sometimes staying in the same place you work or live or whatever can be a hard thing to shut off mm. that that part and then actually be ready for the lifting part. One ritual, one ritual I've had for years, and I've always done it, and it makes me feel a lot better than I do it. I still do it today. Um, is that I need like because I've been doing it. Me and Dan, um, me and Dan have been training for years. Me and Dan have been training for years. And one thing we always did is that we, um, before we went to train, we sat down, had a had a drink pre-workout, and we just talked shit for a while, watched some, watched some training videos. But I've always found that now constantly, I've always needed to, um, every time I sat down, have a chat, had a drink, um, I got me in the always got me in the mood to always felt better. When I go out of my office and sit in there, I wait for some of the guys to arrive, have a chat, and I feel good. I'm ready to train. If I go from office to out there, I, I'm unbuggered. I, I can't. I just not not keen to lift um, at all. Another thing, just something you just said then, that I have seen a lot of other people do, I haven't actually done it myself, but I have seen people do it, watching videos of people lifting, whether that be their famous bodybuilder or famous powerlifter. I think you were watching some deadlift ones the other day of lifters. That's another way mm-hmm. that can help people um, sort of get themselves prepared to lift as well. I haven't actually done it, but you just mentioned it then. I know Braden's done it, and I can name a couple of people already that I've seen him in the gym. They literally, they're not listening to music, they're actually listening to like YouTube videos of their favorite lifter or bodybuilder talking about their how they train and watching them train and all that sort of stuff and gives them that um, capacity to, to train well in the gym themselves. Mm. No, movies is the best one for me. Yeah. Like the week before a comp, we were watching the craziest movies, like 300, yeah. just like yeah. that sort of shit. It's just really gee up. Yeah. Even while I'm watching heavy lifting. So do I. Anyways. Cool. So um, be cool to hear back. Like I said, be cool to hear back from yeah. other people. Feedback about what because there'd be a million things out there that people do for, that works particularly for them, or they've noticed it works for others. Actually, um, it'd, be be good, it'd probably be a good conversation point next time we do like a a, a pro raw one mm. when we have the team because we're having like a, a bigger team next year for pro raw. Talk about all that because this will be for our first episode. You know, but this time we'll go around and say, "What do you do?" Mm. and have a listen to what each person what each person does. Mm. Sure. Um, Cool. Um, so this is the Muscle Podcast. We this was for the 
athlete management episodes and so this is the third one going from you know scientific method to um, goal setting and now principles of strength i'm probably hoping over the next couple of weeks we might go into the fourth episode might actually start looking at the program specific things maybe um, um uh, but I'll see, how we I'll see how we are. I'm hoping that I've laid enough information down to kind of back up some of the reasons why I don't have certain prescription protocols. Alright, cool. Thanks for some Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you wish to contact me, please email me, Gus, G-U-S, at musclenerd.com.au